Welcome to On The Dresser. Sex, queers, politics. What's on your dresser? Our conversations are led by sex workers, queer folk, and sex educators. We call what we do edutitillation. We use explicit language and discuss topics that may not be a good fit for all listeners. But if you like honest, frank talk about gender, sexuality, and bodies, if you know it's all political but aren't always sure what to do about it, we're here for you. I'm Danny Cruz, and on today's episode, we're bringing you a gem from our radio days, a rebroadcast of Sex and the Law Part 2. This is from the summer of 2016, and it features our conversation with attorney and co-founder of Red Light Legal, Christina Dolgan. Law enforcement is doing things like trying to predict whether you're about to engage in criminal behavior by bringing in their ideas around race and gender. Mm -hmm. These types of things are are indicators of what they believe a prostitute would look like Mm -hmm. or how a prostitute would behave. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, this project, then called Sex Please, conducted a sex worker know your rights training on the largest radio broadcast signal in the Western United States. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sex, Please. I'm your host, Vanessa Carlisle, and I'm here with my partner in the sublime, Danny Cruz. Hola. (laughs) Um, Our guest tonight is Christina Dolgan. She's the co-founder of Red Light Legal, which is an Oakland-based nonprofit organization that provides direct legal services, legal representation, community education, and policy advocacy to sex workers in all corners of the industry. So we want to make sure we welcome Christina right now. Are you on the line? Yay! (laughs) All right. Um, So before we get to our conversation with Christina, a couple of of pieces of business to do here. Um, The first is we are doing a, a a new thing here at Sex Please. This is our public service announcement. If at any time during our next hour, uh, people in Los Angeles or any other city where you're listening to us, if you're witness to increased law enforcement activity, such as a DUI checkpoint or a prostitution sting, we encourage you to call the station at 818-985-5735. You can tell Mike, who's answering the phones, about what's happening. Let him know right away that you've witnessed uh, and want to report increased law enforcement activity. Just let him know where the cops were and what they were doing. And we will make a public service announcement on the air so that our listeners who are currently outside or in transit can maybe avoid getting caught up in some bullshit. So if you see something, say something. They do like to say that. (laughs) That's my favorite appropriation of the day. (laughs) Um, Okay. Danny, do you have some sex news? Notices of sexo? Yes, I do. So... Uh, 10 days ago, a 20-year-old woman whose chosen first name is unknown and whose social media has nicknamed Goddess Diamond was found in a torch car in New Orleans. The medical examiner says Diamond died of a blunt force trauma before the car was burned. Uh, Goddess Diamond is the 14th trans trans person known to have been murdered so far in the U.S. in 2016. Uh, a senior public information officer for New Orleans Police Department named Don Massey told the news site The Advocate that Diamond's death is being investigated as a homicide and arson. Diamond worked a retail job at Walmart. A co-worker there, George Melikar, spoke fondly of her, saying that she was very kind and very loved. 
trans women of color face incredible levels of homicide in the U.S. And the number of trans women of color murdered has risen every year for the last several years. Uh, more than half of anti-LGBT hate murders are trans women of color, specifically black trans women. And the overall rate of anti-trans hate crimes rose by 13% between 2013 and 2014. Wow. Uh, it is believed that many more trans women of color are murdered each year than are reported in the media, though as many police departments, families, and media outlets fail to identify them as trans people. Uh, in San Diego, the adult listing site, San Diego Adult Service Provider, was shut down, and the site's owners, Christian Koalani and Dale Vincent, faced charges of pimping, pandering, conspiracy, solicitation of prostitution, and money laundering. Oh, man. Everything but sex trafficking. Because why? It was all consensual uh. adults. Uh, following a year-long investigation by the multi-agency San Diego Human Trafficking Task Force, San Diego PD says that the two men, quote, lured vulnerable young women into taking part in the scheme with offers of drugs and money. The suspects <laughs> apparently used their website, San Diego Adult Service Provider, to not, post. Not puppies, though. Not puppies. No. To post, advertise, and profit from paid sex acts. Everybody that I've, whose timeline I've read on this, say that they were just listing site people, nothing more. No, there was no pimping or paying them out or tipping them out or doing anything. So uh, 55,000 willing consensual adults use the site to keep themselves safe. That's both clients and providers on that site. So a big loss wow. in wow. keeping safe online in San Diego. Maybe Christina has some insight on this. What happens? Do you, do you know what happens when a big site like that goes down? Like, is there is is there an increase in, in people getting busted? Like, what is it harder for people to find clients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the internet is this amazing place that allows us to you know, shield ourselves from people, meeting people in person for the first time. And it allows sex workers to have the space to vet people before they actually get in, a, in an intimate position with them. Um, and without that resource, you know, people are definitely having to have these encounters in more visible areas like working on the street or meeting people in bars where um, the likelihood that they're going to be interacting with a cop or um, interacting with somebody who is posing as a client but really is an abuser is much, much higher. So, mm -hmm. you know, anytime we have any of these websites getting shut down, we do see an increase in both arrests and anecdotally, like, harm, physical harm to people in the sex industry. Yeah, thanks. Uh, in Oakland, on the other side of California, the police department is having a hell of a week. Uh, they've gone through three police chiefs in the span of six days. Yeah. Uh, on Wednesday, Mayor Libby Schaff fired the interim chief, but declined to answer why, repeating, repeatedly noting that state law prohibits discussion of police personnel madams, uh, matters. <laughs> madams, too. I like it. Uh, <laughs> um, Schaff appointed that interim chief last week following the abrupt departure of the former chief during an ongoing investigation, saying that he looked the other way while dozens of his officers had sex with a underage prostitute. Uh, according to multiple sources close to the department and the city of Oakland, as well as documents uh, obtained by news sources, at least 14 Oakland police officers, three Richmond police, four Alameda County Sheriff's deputies and a federal officer had 
connections and relationships with a young prostitute by the name uh, who, who goes by the name of Celeste Quap. Three of those knew her before she turned 18. Um, but uh, according to Miss Quap, she had sex with those men for protection from both harm and arrest, which happens. Uh, the East Bay Express wants to call this scandal unprecedented, but it happens a lot. Yeah, it's kind of surprising that they that they felt uh, that they felt they could use that word unprecedented. <clears throat> if you'd like to learn more about how that's not unprecedented, police prostitution and politics dot com is a great place to start. This big probe um, came after a an Oakland police officer con- committed suicide in 2015 uh, and left a note. His suicide note included uh, a confession of his relationship with the young woman. Um, and this led to an investigation where several police agencies have multiple officers involved. So Red Light Legal is located in Oakland. So maybe Christina can reflect on this story for us. What's happening? Yeah, it's awful. It's absolutely terrible. But um, as y'all said just a moment ago, you know, it really is not unprecedented. Um, there have been studies done across the U.S. Um, and sex workers have made it very clear that this is a very typical um, type of interaction that they experience with law enforcement. Um, either, uh, you know, they are, you know, forced to have sex by the tip of a gun or under the threat of arrest, or they feel compelled by the power differential to, you know, have sexual relationship with a you know, uniform police officer in order to avoid an arrest. So what Celeste did in this case um, and what all these police officers did in this case, I think, you know, the numbers in the 20s at this point, you know, is is very sad and very real um, and mm-hmm. very much the reality of many, many people. Mm-hmm. What do you think about her coming out and telling her story and, and putting her name on it? What, how do you how do you think she's going to keep herself safe or is it? It just feels that part feels a little unprecedented to me. Like, I don't think that I've read a story where someone was speaking from the sex worker position so openly about what was going on without there being like a big political scandal, like a la Elliot Spitzer. Like, this is a different thing. She's talking mm-hmm. about a systemic act. Like, she's not actually talking about a few bad apples. She's talking about a situation that is so common and so widespread that we we know it to be part of the structure, right? And that seems different to me. What do you, what do you think? It, I do think it is different, and I'm not entirely certain if it you know just has to do with her power and where she is, um, or if it also just has a lot to do with where we are in a political moment, um, where media and um, other city officials are much more receptive to uh, the community's cries around um, police violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as we've been having so much more, um, you know, in our social consciousness around police violence with Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, I, I really think that a shift has a lot to do with this as well, because mm-hmm. there certainly are other sex workers that have come forward um, and tried to be public about the harm that they've experienced, but they haven't been able to receive the platforms that Celeste has in this case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We have a caller on the line. Clark, you have a comment? Are you there? I'm here. Hello. I, I heard the term uh, used earlier, underaged prostitute. And 
there is no such thing as an underaged prostitute. That is a sex trafficked minor, and the police that were having sex with her are guilty of rape. Thank you, Clark. Christina, are you still on the line? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think I think it's important that that happened because we definitely have constantly questions about why we're using the terminology that we're using. Um, calling her an underage prostitute is is controversial in part because there are those like Clark who believe that there's no way that a person who is under 18 could make a decision around their own survival um, that includes selling sex. Uh, I disagree, and I think that a person who has been raped um, knows they've been raped, and a person who has sold sex knows they've sold sex, and that part of what we're trying to do is be sensitive to the language that sex workers use about their own experience. Mm -hmm. And in this case, you know, by our California statute, you know, the sex that she had when she was under the age of 18 with somebody who is significantly older would be considered statutory rape. Nobody is, I think, questioning that in the slightest. Um, but to, you know, I, to attribute different language based upon, you know, a, a few months or a few days when she was 17 versus 18, um, you know, victim versus prostitute, um, you know, that, that I feel is, you know, just really coming from like a political uh, perception that doesn't really hold a, a lot of weight. It's interesting, too, because she, she has said in one of her um, statements that, she understands now. She says, I, I feel now that I was being victimized by those cops, but, you know, I don't, I, I don't hold it against them or. I don't have any bad feelings towards them. Right. So like she, she said, like that was part of her statement. And I thought that was really interesting because everyone's going to think that, that she couldn't possibly not have bad feelings towards them. Right. But, mm -hmm. she, but she just said she didn't. And, and that's, that's part of the public story now is that yeah. um, she felt like they were protecting her at the time. She doesn't, you know, she felt like she was making kind of a fair trade at, mm -hmm. the, at the time. And one, of the, That's one of the lines that I found um, particularly interesting from her um, East Bay Express interview was, you know, I think cops are fine. They're cute and all, but it's like one less officer that's going to arrest me for, you know, whatever officer that she has sex with, which, you know, she was making decisions, you know, um, those officers were certainly still in the wrong, um, but, you know, she was doing what she had to do to survive and to, to, to not be incarcerated. Right. Well, maybe we should back up just a little bit um, uh, and start with the story of Red Light Legal and just introduce you, Christina Dolgan, again. Um, she's the co-founder of Red Light Legal, the Oakland-based nonprofit. It's a, an organization that provides direct legal services, legal representation, community education, and policy advocacy to sex workers. Um, and she's here to talk with us tonight. So can you give us a little bit of history just about Red Light Legal, the organization? Yeah, so I have been in the sex industry for eight years, um, and I have been engaged in community organizing and doing advocacy work within the sex worker community um, for almost as long as I've been in the industry. Um, and, you know, being surrounded by sex workers uh, means I've also been surrounded by the terrible issues that we face um, and also have recognized that there are tremendous gaps in services that are available and accessible 
um, to people in the sex industry. Um, I've had friends who have had um, the custody of their children taken away from them because, you know, a former spouse has used them engaging in legal sex work um, as a basis for them being deemed like an unsafe parent. Um, you know, I've known people who have um, been subjected to sexual exploitation by police officers and then later had that brushed off by, you know, county prosecutors and other um, county officials as, you know, just something that is a risk and liability as being a sex worker. Um, you know, I, there are issues that are coming from every angle for sex workers, and I decided that I needed to do something about it. Um, so I went to law school um, to create an organization um, and funnel legal services to the people I care about. Thank you. What are your goals with the project? You have some small, immediate things that are going on, some, some larger, bigger picture goals you can tell us about? Yeah. Um, so in this moment, I am trying to set up a monthly day-long free legal clinic for low-income sex workers. Um, and we're going to have them be issue-specific. So the first one that we're having in July is going to be um, um, getting people, um, at least 20 people, to walk out with advanced directives, um, which can be a, a really important document for people who um, you know, have come to the Bay Area, Oakland specifically, to get away from abusive family members um, or get away from a legal spouse and don't want those people to make decisions relating to their medical mm. health or, or mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what happens to them if they are incapacitated. Um, so, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of work to get that set up um, and we're super excited to have that happen. But long term, you know, our overall goals are, you know, just generally reduce the violence that sex workers experience every day. Um, and we're talking about violence that happens in all its forms, you know, interpersonal violence from the actual physical abuse and exploitation that happens you know, from law enforcement, from predators, um, to the more, some of the more um, infrastructural abuses that, that take place just because of the overall stigma and discrimination that is so entrenched in our employment law, in our um, policies at the local and the state and the national level. Mm -hmm. um, and we want to, you know, we're we are striving for full decriminalization of prostitution. And um, we want to see an end to the surveillance and the policing and the de deportation of you know, members our, of our community. Got it. Thank you. So big, big stuff. Yeah, big stuff. So you just described a little bit um, one of the one of the projects that you have and some of the types of cases that you've seen. Um, can you talk about some of the policy advocacy that you're doing? Yeah, right now um, we are part of the Alameda Jail Fight Coalition. Um, that is a group of individuals and organizations that is working in opposition to the Alameda County Sheriff's proposal to expand and quote unquote improve our county jail um, with $54 million of county money. Mm. Um, so this is this is a huge fight for us. You know, especially here in Oakland, where the sex worker arrests have more than doubled from 2014 to 2015. 
So in 2014, we had 194 people arrested for prostitution. Um, and last year, it was 452 people. So, um, you know, whoa. the bigger the jail, the more of our people <clears throat> that are going to be shoved into it, you know, the more people are going to be, you know, broken up from their families, from their communities, you know, they're going to be losing their, um, their other jobs, their homes. You know, and this really exasperates, you know, mental and physical health issues that people might have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are some of the challenges you you face when trying to do this work? What's what's standing in the way of some of these changes? <laughs> I mean, this, this can come from a lot of different directions, you know, politically in this moment. Um, mainstream anti-human trafficking efforts are, um, you know, going hand in hand with anti-sex work efforts. So, um, you know, any moves that are happening, um, you know, under the guise of ending trafficking or ending exploitation um, are often aimed just at all members of communities that are engaged in sex work. Um, and these are, you know, again, um, following other types of policing where they're being aimed at um, communities of color, poor communities, immigrant communities, um, you know, queer, trans people. Um, and having these kinds of harmful policies um, tied up in ribbon and super emotionally charged um, can can make uh, pointing out their problems very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, it, it makes this work incredibly challenging because, um, you know, uh, there are a lot of people that don't necessarily think about these things in all its complicated um, form. So, uh, you know, that, that makes policy work incredibly difficult. Right. So, um, so public perception of just what the work, what the work is, what we're actually trying right. to, trying to do. Um, right, right. I mean, even even, um, you know, at a foundational level, you know, what we define as trafficking changes from state to state, from county to county, um, includes a lot of different um, social situations and interactions that may or may not actually be exploitative. Um, so, you know, even being able to have a conversation with a politician um, or representation from another nonprofit can be incredibly difficult because there's so much unpacking that needs to happen first around language mm -hmm. um, to even to even get on the same page to talk about like how how these words actually trickle down um, and affect you know the people we're working with. Yeah, this reminds me of um, a conversation that we had with Norma Jean Almodovar in Sex and the Law Part One. We're we're now mm -hmm. in Sex and the Law Part Two. Um, in, in Sex and the Law Part 1, where she was talking about um, an effort that she and some other sex worker organizers made um, to get a piece of language changed in a, some, you know, international resolution document that they were at a big conference somewhere. And I can't remember the details now, which is rude. But anyway, the point is they got the language changed. Um, and the only thing that, that they had was the word forced inserted into uh, a phrase about f prostitution. And it was like, mm -hmm. you know, just putting the word forced in there implies that there are forms of sex trade that are not forced. 
Not um, for right. <laughs> and that was a big deal, right? Because mm-hmm. there were so many people in the room who did not believe that that was possible. And then people in the, you know, and, and wanted to fight even the concept. So that, that barrier is, is a, um, it's, it's a, it's a structural one, but it's also like, can play out in very intense interpersonal ways, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in conversation. Thank you so much for this conversation with Christina Dolgan. You're listening to Sex, Please. We're part of Safe Harbor on KPFK 90.7 Los Angeles. Um, We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to keep talking with Christina Dolgan of Red Light Legal. Hi, listeners. This is Dr. Vanessa Carlisle. As you may already know, On the Dresser is a completely independent production. We are a very small team trying to do some very big things in the field of adult sex education, sex workers' rights, sex and body positivity, and queer community building. We brought you episodes we recorded in our cars, in our closets, during the aftermath of FOSTA-SESTA, while protesting in the street uh, or sharing a mic on the floor of my apartment. We've recorded in our work clothes, in our depression sweats, in our hangovers, in our feelings. We've gotten interviews with incredible people who believe in us and believe in the project of this show. We love this project, but it requires time and resources, and we need to restructure how we create and produce our content. So we are going on a hiatus until the fall, during which we will be streamlining some of our processes, handling some life stuff, and building a stronger platform for our growth. For the next few weeks, we'll be offering you some of the gems from our last two and a half years and asking you to consider supporting On The Dresser so that we can keep making you proud. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Listening to Sex Please on KPFK Safe Harbor 90.7 FM. This is a live call-in show. We've got Christina Dolgan of Red Light Legal here for an interview, and you are welcome to call in and join the conversation. Hi, Christina. Are you still there? Can you hear me? Yeah, there she is. Hi, Christina. Hey. <laughs> Hello. All right. So we're gonna return to this conversation for those of you who may just be joining us. Uh, We're speaking with Christina Dolgan, who's the co-founder of Red Light Legal. It's an Oakland-based nonprofit organization, provides direct legal services, legal representation, community education, and policy advocacy to sex workers. And we've been talking about um, the kind of work that this organization does. And one of the things that they do is criminal defense. Is that true? Um, we have assisted some folks with um, criminal defense. We are currently not taking on cases, okay. um, but we are connecting sex workers who have been arrested with culturally competent um, attorneys, criminal defense attorneys that we, we have vetted. Um, and we also um, have assisted um, a few different sex workers in interacting with their um, you know, city prescribed public defender. Got it. Um, you know, there have been, you know, a couple of occasions in Oakland um, and the greater Bay area where um, a sex worker has not had the, a positive experience interacting with their public defender or the public defender has not been able to take the time to really explain 
the process and help them through the trauma of arrest. Um, Mm -hmm. And we've been able to kind of step in and assist in that role. Awesome. So we have some more questions for you, and uh, they're coming from a group of sex workers who are forming a peer-to-peer collective. Um, And we got some questions from them to to ask of you. So we're going to move with those now. The first one is, does it matter what language we use on our websites or ads? Is there language we can use that protects us more, or do the stings just happen regardless? This is a really good question, and um, this one comes up a lot. So I think I think it would be good to spend a couple minutes on this, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this this comes up a lot, um, and the short answer is no. It doesn't matter what you see on your your ad. There are no magic words that exist that'll uh, magically shield anybody from an arrest. Um, and and it's totally understandable why people ask this question. You know, interacting with law enforcement is terrible. It results in arrest, imprisonment, um, and all the collateral consequences of criminal charge. Um, and people want to you know, limit that interaction for a lot of good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but in generally speaking, for people who are working indoors, um, they find their clients using the internet um, and they are targeted by law enforcement through their ads. Um, cops pose as clients uh, responding to an ad and ask to meet um, in person for a session. Um, in most of these cases, um, the sex workers add um, the subsequent phone calls, the texts, the emails exchange with their officer um, would be enough evidence to actually have them make an arrest or solicitation. Mm. Um, so um, cops only need a 50% likelihood that um, criminal activity is taking place. You know, it's a much lower standard. Whoa. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a much lower standard what? than what you face if you're actually at trial. So it just has to be like, eh, they might not, they might be 50-50 chance. So wow. that's, that's pretty low. The issue though, and the reason why, more sex workers aren't arrested is that, you know, the officer generally doesn't know where the sex worker is at that point. Right. So the arrest happens when the officer actually goes to a session mm-hmm. and this, you know, obviously changes by city, by state, um, you know, who is targeted just depends on what the focus is, is that law enforcement agency. Um, but, you know, there's a whole slew of things that people do um, with their ads, believing that it's going to reduce their chance for arrest, um, mm-hmm. doing things like listing payment and roses. Um, and this doesn't, work for a couple of reasons. The first is that, you know, um, in most states, the definition of prostitution is not limited to the exchange of sexual services for cash. Um, so, you know, roses would count as an item of value. Right. Um, so even if they, the cop actually believed you were getting, you know, roses or flowers or diamonds or whatever it was in exchange for sexual activity, you know, they could just be like, well, that totally fits within our statutory code anyway. Right. Um, and then, right. You know, and then the second part of that, too, is, you know, any cop, any judge, any jury member, you know, can just put really just put two and two together, you know, that you don't actually expect to be paid in roses. Right. Like nobody wants that. (laughs) (laughs) I need 750 roses. (laughs) 
<laughs> Friday. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like once you figure out that it's slang, right? It's some sort of right. it's like it's got its own it's got its own meaning at that point and no one's gonna no one's gonna argue that it's actually roses. That's right, right. Uh, um the other thing people do too is like call payment a donation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that one, um, that argument was actually used in Arizona recently. Um, I can't remember the name of the madam, um, that was fighting a prostitution charge. And one of the things that she was saying in both her advertisements and while she was representing herself was that, you know, she wasn't collecting payment for, um, any sexual services. She was collecting no donation, um, you know, which, you know, again, it's just, they're going to be like, well, that's slang that, you know, mm-hmm. we, we really know that when you say donation, you mean payment. So, um, yeah, these, these things aren't actually, uh, shielding anybody from anything. Wow. So, okay. Is it true that if you see their junk, they can't be a cop in California, in, in California? No, not true. That's- that's not true. That's not true anywhere. Um, you know, so that again is one of those myths that's really prevalent that, you know, uh, along with, you know, if you ask a police undercover police officer, if they're an officer, um, you know, they have to tell you, Uh um, and that's just not true. Um, and in some cases that can actually lead to your arrest that can be used as evidence against you. Um, wait, 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 example, wait, break that down. Break that down. If you, if you yeah. ask, if you ask someone if they're a cop and they are a cop, they can use the fact that you ask them if they're a cop to arrest you. Absolutely. What? In their, again, that's the most fascist shit ever. That happened. Oh my that God. Happened. Okay, I'm going to yeah. stop laughing. That actually happens. That just blew my <laughs> yeah, mind. That, that blew my mm-hmm. mind. That's what that's what happened with Monica Jones, um, who is a black trans woman. That, that's that what I didn't arrested. realize that was what happened with Monica Jones. That she asked, yeah. "Are you a cop?" And that was the that was part of the evidence against her. Yep, at trial, you know, you know, in her mind, um, the scenario was very scary. She asked if this person um, was a cop because. You know, she thought she was being kidnapped by a predator. Right. Um, And it was at that moment that the driver of the vehicle that she was in pulled over, arrested her for solicitation or manifesting the intent to, you know, to engage in prostitution. So, yeah, it it, it can actually um, be evidence against you in in a lot of different places. What's the difference between manifesting intent and solicitation? It depends on the state. So in Arizona, they have a manifestation bit, which is, in my mind, kind of like a thought crime type of thing, Mm -hmm. Um, because that means, you know, police officers are trying to predict when you are about to commit a crime. So, you know, in California, we kind of have that um, tied into our solicitation um, charge, but um, in Arizona, they actually have it uh, parsed out a little bit more. So um, this means law enforcement is doing things like trying to predict whether you're about to engage in criminal behavior by bringing in their ideas around race and gender, mm-hmm. um, what they think you know people are doing, would be doing if they are black and trans mm-hmm. walking down a particular street on a particular time of day. This is where the use of condoms is evidence. 
of solicitation or prostitution has become really controversial um, because these these types of things are are indicators of what they believe a prostitute would look like mm-hmm. or how a prostitute would behave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're, you're listening to Sex, Please. We're talking with Christina Dolgan, the co-founder of Red Light Legal. So, Christina, what should a sex worker do from the moment that they realize they're in contact with the police? What What's the wisest course of action? Should you, like, just be honest and say, yeah, I'm a hooker. Let me go, please. Or should uh, you <laughs> do something ooh. else? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. (laughs) If it's, first of all, if it's not clear that you were being arrested, the first thing and one of the only things that should come out of your mouth is the question, um, am I being detained? Mm -hmm. If they say yes, then ask, am I free to go? I mean, you should you should really do those two questions at the same time. If they say you're not being detained or if they say you are free to go, get the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. Or calmly, swiftly, get to a place of safety. Don't say anything more to the police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are forced to interact with the police officer because you're being detained or arrested, um, the only things that you should say are, I am enforcing my right to remain silent. Um, there was a Supreme Court case that came out just um, a couple of years ago that said um, in order to use your right to remain silent, you actually have to say that out loud. Otherwise, they can use your silence as evidence against you. Pretty wild. So yeah. don't just stay quiet. Just say you're going to stay quiet. Wow. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah. it, was, it was interesting. Yeah. We had a uh, we had a yeah. uniformed uh, sheriff's deputy come to the uh, SWAT booth at uh, at Pride, and mm-hmm. uh, he asserted that if he were to stop a street worker and they were honest with him about what they were doing, that he he would most likely let him go. And I had this moment of mm-hmm. like, hmm. and I told him, I said, "Yeah, that's a gamble." Because you might, but every time a sex worker has a interaction with any cop, it's a gamble on whether they're going to, how they're going to use that information. Right. Right. Okay. We have, and that's just not real too. I mean, if you've watched, you know, law and order show, you know, cops lie all the time. They (laughs) say they're going to do one thing and then do the exact opposite. So yeah, yeah. Don't trust them. <laughs> We've got a caller on the line who would like to remain anonymous, but has a question. Hello. Hi. What's on oh. your What's on your mind, anonymous? Uh, yeah, my question is: um, if you meet with someone for whatever reason, and you go to, let's say, I take you and give you an expensive dinner, or take you to see a show, and then I receive, you know, sex later on that night, what's the difference between soliciting and getting just straight cash for it or getting other bargaining deals? Because that's how a first date or second date goes all the time. <laughs> that's such a good mm-hmm. question. How do well, we know, Christina? <laughs> yeah, no, that's 
a totally real legitimate question. And, you know, a lot of people would say that, you know, all of our social interactions or romantic relationships or sexual relationships are transactional. So there's no real difference. Right. Um, but in terms of, you know, whether or not you would be subject to a criminal charge is going to depend on, um, you know, what, that meeting, that initial meeting looks like and what led to that initial meeting. You know, so if you're um, finding something through somebody through the internet and you're talking about payment um, and it can be construed from where you're advertising or where you're asking somebody out, um, you know, all these things could point to, you know, the exchange of sex or a lewd act for money or mm-hmm. a service or something of value. So uh, it really is just dependent upon um, what it looks like from the outside, um, from a potential law, you know, cop. Um, and then also to, you know, the reality is, you know, law enforcement agencies are agencies of limited resources, right? Um, they're not going after every single person um, for a misdemeanor prostitution charge. They're really pretty much going for low-hanging fruit, people where uh, uh, situations where they can pick up a lot of people at one time, like mm-hmm. on street-based things, um, or when they're working, um, going for, you know, then certainly they do target people who work indoors, but um, they often go for people indoors when they think they can get a bigger fish they can go for a bigger charge when they're Mm -hmm. starting to get into felony territories or at least multiple misdemeanors or when they think that they can track down um, like someone working in management, what they would, you know, call pimping or pandering or trafficking now. Um, That's really when you're going to, you're going to see resources go, go for people. Um, But, you know, for most people who are just meeting people on the internet, they may or may not have sex. Um, those are relationships may or may not look transactional. The likelihood is your risk is pretty, pretty low. Thank you. We've got another caller. Nikki, are you on the line? Yeah. Hi. Hi. What's your question? Okay. So, um, I'm a hairstylist. I have a lot of clients and friends who do, who are involved in the BDSM scene and do dominatrix work Mm -hmm. professionally. And, um, if I remember right, I once asked um, a, a cop what the rules are around that, and I remember him saying that it's the same thing to them. Um, but my friends that do the dominatrix work have been like raided before, and they were actually let let off the hook because they did determine that it's not prostitution what they're doing; it's hmm. a different kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But I was just wondering what if you knew what's the latest like what is um what are the rules in regards to that legally and I guess what are our rights with that kind of category, I guess. Mhm. Mhm. So That's wondering. a good question. Um and those friends who were able to like get out of a raid, that is really lucky and awesome for them. Um that isn't necessarily true for everybody who does BDSM work or professional domination or submission. Um in California, um the specific language that we use is, you know, um prostitution means to engage in 
sexual intercourse or a lewd act in exchange for something of value or money. Um, and a lewd act is defined as anything that involves touching genitals, touching buttocks, breasts, um, with the intent to arouse or gratify somebody sexually. Law enforcement doesn't care whether you are touching somebody with your hand or a flogger or a cane, um, whether you are arousing somebody by, you know, you know, uh, doing like a traditional sex act or you're doing it by hitting. Um, these, these acts could be um, subject to a prostitution charge. Um, and, you know, whether or not, again, it comes back down to, you know, whether or not professional doms are being targeted right now. Um, people who are doing that kind of work are kind of low um, on police radar, but, you know, the risk is there. Thank you. So, Danny, did you is, have is there a Is there a different kind of... Um... Are there any differences in those charges? Like if somebody is a, a pro-dom, like uh, adding assault charges to that um, on top of prostitution charges, uh, just because I know a lot of uh, some some other jurisdictions have, you know, you can't consent to a, a BDSM style abuse. Mm -hmm. There's no consent mm -hmm. in, in being in being harmed like that or being, you know, yeah. Yeah, well, um, at least here in California, I believe it is, you know, you can consent to, you know, being hit, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, but there are particular acts that you can't consent to, like um, choking, um, for example, in uh, California, it could subject you to a felony charge, even if both parties are consenting to it. So that is totally within the realm of possibility. Wow. Well, if, let's say, you are in a situation where a cop is touching you, um, arresting you or touching you in some other way, is it legal to fight back? Can you can you defend yourself? Mm. It's not a wise thing to do for a lot of reasons, um, you know, primarily being, you know, if you are fighting back against the cop. Um, that's just going to fuel them in doing something terrible to you. Um, you know, people come out of interactions with law enforcement with broken bones, with punctured lungs, you know, being tasered, being beaten. A lot of people are dying right now. So um, I strongly, strongly advise against, you know, using physical violence against the cop, especially, you know, if you're by yourself and, you know, um, in an isolated area. Mm -hmm. um, there's just no end to the terrible things that could happen to you. Um, and also, you know, whether or not, you know, you are later vindicated in having a good reason to do that, um, you could still be arrested for assault and battery upon an officer. Um, and then you would have to go through the process of, um, you know, proving proving that you had good reason uh, or that it was in self-defense but mm -hmm. in most cases you know it's it's not going to be worth it um and it's going to be a um you know officer versus sex worker type of argument and you know who are they going to respect more in a courtroom mm -hmm. so what if, if you could tell sex workers three things to remember to do you you are 
you just discovered that you're going to be in contact with law enforcement, what are the three things that, that sex workers need to know to do? Mm-hmm. Say that you're going to remain silent. Ask for a lawyer repeatedly. And, you know, uh, if you are subjected to any kind of misconduct or um, sexual abuse by a cop, um, take notes, document your injuries. Um, and uh, get as much information about that interaction as possible um, so that you can, um, you know, ensure that you're going to be safe and whole and, you know, be able to take care of yourself in the end um, and get that officer, if you wish, and have the capacity to get that officer out of the department. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Christina Dolgan, co-founder of Red Light Legal, an Oakland-based uh, community organization that provides direct legal services, legal representation, education, and policy advocacy for sex workers. We're just so grateful to have you on tonight. Thank you so much. We'd also like to thank uh, Matt Kellegrew of Red Light Legal. He's also also part of the team. Um, want to big a I just did it. I just did the thing. I want to give, <laughs> I want to give big love, big love right now to Gary Baca, who also was working the board tonight. And thank you so much to Mike in the booth. I'm here with Danny Cruz. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, on the Twitter um, at a Danny Boy. And Christina, how can people follow Red Light Legal? Get in touch with you. Get get more information. Uh, for sex workers who have any type of legal question, you can go to our website at redlightlegal.org um, and submit your questions to our confidential and free online legal clinic. Um, you can also follow us on social media by looking up Red Light Legal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm your host, Vanessa Carlisle. You can follow me on Twitter at vcarlisle. And we'd want to thank Christina so much for coming on tonight. I learned a lot. I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> I loved it. All my questions. <laughs> no. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for checking out this free broadcast of Sex and the Law Part 2. You can find past episodes, including Sex and the Law Part 1, uh, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play Podcasts. You can get in touch with us by email, send your letters or voice memos to onthedresser at gmail.com, onthedresser at gmail.com. You can find our Twitter at onthedresser. All our music for this episode was produced by Lou Gomez. All power to the people, all pleasure to the people. Good night and good fuck. Good night.